This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Certainly, the world of finance has received more than a few black eyes in the last decade, and the perception of the sector is normally not a positive, seen as a money-hungry, only worried about oneself industry. Yet could this be slightly incorrect? Harvard professor Mihir Desai believes that this misconception is true, and there are great pieces of wisdom that can be pulled from it for our lives in general. He brings these ideas forward in his book, The Wisdom of Finance. And Mihir joins us on the show right now. Mihir, great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me, Dan. Thank you. I would imagine that when you, when you have brought this book forward and you talk to people about it, with that kind of narrative, as, as I laid out, about what finance and the banking sector have been over the last decade, do people do a double take on this to a degree? Because there there is this just negative association with the industry right now. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think, frankly, just putting uh, the two words, wisdom and finance, in the title makes people just think it's an oxymoron of some kind, you know. And so what I really wanted to do, though, was kind of go up against that image. And in particular, you know, I think people are really upset about finance. And some of them have good reason to be. You know, obviously finance is not uh, doing everything it should be doing. But there are also a lot of misconceptions. So the book is an effort to demystify uh, finance for those people who don't know it, but then also, you know, humanize it, because I think we desperately need finance to be humanized. That's part of the problem today, which is people perceive it as a complex uh, topic that is not accessible. In fact, it's pretty intuitive, and the book really just tries to lay that out. Uh, This started as a commencement speech, correct? Well, yeah. So I was giving a talk to the graduating uh, MBA students in 2015, and I had no idea what I was going to talk about. Um, in fact, I was going to do some kind of narrow, financy thing. And then I realized that's not what you're supposed to do in these settings. Um, so I came up with a title, uh, The Wisdom of Finance, and then I had to figure out what it meant. And I was just struck by how quickly the parallels emerged between the big ideas of finance and, you know, big questions in life. And that parallelism really struck a chord when I gave it as a talk. And I think the reason was because people wanted Uh, meaning and wisdom, but they don't want it dispensed from upon high. They want it from their lives and they want it from their work. So if you can talk about meaning by talking about, you know, (laughs) leverage or value creation or options in a way that's more resonant than talking about it in some abstract way. So give us the backstory on on linking the finance industry to the humanities. Well, so um, once I kind of gave the talk, that was just the parallels. And then I realized that, you know, to tell um, this in a book, I really wanted to tell stories. And one of the great things about writing this book was I kind of got reconnected to storytelling. And, you know, when you're an economist like I am, you get skeptical about stories because you think, you know, if you can't show it in <laughs> in the data, <laughs> right. it doesn't mean anything. Right. And what I did in this case was actually try to write a book where all the big ideas of finance were talked about, but with no equations, no graphs, just stories. And to do that, I kind of had the greatest year and a half of my life, which I just kind of read amazing stuff for about a year and a half. And I saw finance everywhere. So, for example, um, when I was trying to think about risk management and how to talk about risk management, um, I found the stories of Jane Austen and Anthony Trollope, you know, who people would never think about sure. in the context of risk management. Right, yes. 
Um, but if you think about the problem facing young women in the 19th century, it's the problem of, God, I got all these suitors. They're really risky. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. I don't know how to choose. How do I weigh those risks? And in fact, they talk about it that way. And in fact, you know, in Anthony Trollope's Phineas Finn, the character uh, Violet Effingham actually gives voice to the logic of diversification and options, which are like the two big risk management tools in finance. Yeah. So I started to see it everywhere. And so I thought it would be much more interesting, much more fun to talk about um, risk management with that as opposed to, you know, Black-Scholes-Merton pricing formula. Well, and, and, and slightly it draws a little bit more attention to it uh, because you also uh, talk about a variety of, of aspects of this linking to pop culture, like different different artists, different uh, uh, singers and, and films as well, don't you? Yeah, exactly. So actually, my favorite chapter, frankly, in the whole book is um, is about the corporate governance problem, you know, which is a really central part of capitalism. That sure. means, you know, managers misbehaving, basically, and not sure. doing what shareholders want. And so, you know, rather than do it in a typical way, I do it with Mel Brooks and the producers. So this is like an old movie, but it was obviously made into a musical oh, a while it's ago. it's a great film. One of my favorites. Exactly. And so, as you might recall, the underlying story is a governance story. Yep. Um, and so that's an interesting way into the problem. And then to develop the idea further, I talk about Apple and I talk about Tootsie Roll, two interesting companies. And then I you know, try to use the producers and Mel Brooks again to kind of come back to how the principal agent problem, which is that corporate governance problem, actually is a pretty useful frame on life, you know, which is a way of saying we're all principals or agents at one time or another. And trying to figure out whether we're behaving well as a principal or an agent is it's a lot of what life is about. Well, you mentioned risk management a minute ago. How do you link bankruptcy back to, to this? Yeah, so bankruptcy is fantastic, you know, because it's such a dramatic thing. The first part of what I try to do is just tell a story so people understand it. And it's a fantastic story. It's a story of Robert Morris, who is the wealthiest man in the colonies, um, who was first asked to be the Treasury Secretary before Alexander Hamilton right. because he had done so much to finance the revolution. Um, and his story is one where, and obviously nobody knows his name anymore. And the reason why is he turned down that job. Um, he went on to become, again, the wealthiest man in the new country. He owned half of New Jersey, half of New York, and then he went bankrupt. And his bankruptcy was the triggering event for us to stop thinking about bankruptcy as, as a moral failing. And so the mm -hmm. 1800 Bankruptcy Act changed a lot of things about bankruptcy because of Robert Morris. So we started to view failure not as something you should like look down on and demonize, but failure is something where you should actually protect the people who fail, and you should understand it as a consequence of risk-taking, not moral failure. And I think that, as is one example, again, of, gosh, actually, you know, bankruptcy is a way to think about failure and how we should react to failure. And I think it's pretty instructive in that way. I also do the American Airlines bankruptcy, which is a fantastic bankruptcy, sure. um, as a way to talk about how bankruptcy is also about you know, managing all these conflicting obligations. You know, that's what we do in a bankruptcy. There are all these people. There's a limited pie. How do we carve it up? Um, can you can you sorry. also can you also see that in and obviously here in in 2017 we're seeing an uh, an incredible number of bankruptcies being filed by by companies in the retail sector. So can you see the correlation there as well? Yeah. Well, I think part of what's happening is uh, in the retail sector is, you know, obviously um, what people have been talking about for years is coming to fruition, which is we have uh, a real problem in the retail sector. What's interesting about what's happening in the retail sector is 
once these companies teeter on the edge, then it becomes about, well, how do you know when to declare bankruptcy? Sure. And some people, you know, like the American Airlines CEO, um, say, I'll never declare bankruptcy. It's wrong. And you have to live by your commitments. Right. And that's nice to say, but it's not realistic. Um, the next CEO comes in in American Airlines and basically restructures the airline. He guts the pensions. He does things, some things that are terrible and some things that are wonderful. But in the longer run, he actually gets the company through. Right. And the yeah. company emerges in a much stronger way. So the person who's usually valorized, this guy who says, I stand by my commitments no matter what, you know, is not really the hero. It's the guy who's willing to kind of like go through the muck of a bankruptcy to salvage the assets. That's actually kind of the hero of that story. We are joined by Mihir Desai. He is the author of the book, The Wisdom of Finance. Discovering Humanity in the World of Risk and Return. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. In doing this book and, and bringing it forward, is it your hope to a degree that, that people will have a, a little bit better understanding of the financial industry in general. And I say that because it feels like more and more today, people, when, when they dip their toe into the financial world, when they're an investor and they're, you know, their 401k or whatever it might be, they are putting things on autopilot. And, and we've talked on this show about the fact that you just can't do that. So yeah. if, if people have a better understanding of finance in general, then maybe they will be more hands-on with a lot of elements that end up being very important to them, especially later in life. I think that's exactly right, Dan. I mean, what I observe in my classroom and with people generally is finance is really intimidating. Uh, and as a consequence, they do these kind of passive things, which is they don't really want to engage because they're intimidated by the ideas. And, you know, that is really unfortunate and really costly to us individually and to us as a society because finance is just so important, <laughs> right? It's so important to your life when you think about retirement. It's so important to your life when you think about student loans that if you kind of block it all out, that's a terrible way to live. So, in a way, the book has these two audiences, right? So for people outside of finance, it's a way of saying, come on in, it's easier than you think, and you can learn a bunch of stuff just with stories. Yeah. Um, and that's a big chunk of the book. But the other chunk of the book is, hey, you, you folks in finance, you know, think hard about these ideas because you know, finance has got a bad rap, and you need to be able to explain finance, and we need to make finance more aspirational. Yeah. And in fact, the underlying ideas are, are worth aspiring to. You talk uh, a couple of things uh, that I wanted to bring up to you. Uh, one, you talk about how this understanding can help people correlate their understanding of life problems. But you also talk about the diversity issue in the sector as well. Um, well, that's right. So the diversity in finance. Yes. Or, yeah. So I think, you know, part of what happens in finance is that people, um, as you know, it's a very undiverse uh, sector. Um, they're underrepresentation of women and, and of minorities. And I think part of the logic for that, or the way people rationalize that, let me say it that way, is they think, well, gosh, you know, finance is so meritocratic, right? The market is a hard master. And I go demonstrate my worth every day because I'm investing and I'm trying and the market is telling me I'm doing well or I'm not doing well. And so if people aren't represented, it's just a function of that meritocratic nature. Right. And that's really problematic. And in fact, the underlying ideas of finance would suggest exactly the opposite, which is, you know, there's a ton of luck in the world. And finance is in a way about you can never separate out luck from skill. And 
you should be really humble about <laughs> any accomplishments in sure. finance because the whole idea behind, for example, efficient markets is it's really, really hard to beat the market. Yet, you know, people in finance routinely kind of say they do. So this is one of the puzzles about finance, right, which is people like to think of it as this skill-based meritocratic thing, and that justifies all kinds of exclusions. In fact, you know, there's no industry where it's easier to dress up failure as success. Sure. Every fund is in the top quartile. All right. Uh, we're joined by Mahir Desai, who is uh, the author of the book, The Wisdom of Finance. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. You also talk about the fact that as a whole, uh, the industry, the finance industry, is a fairly ethical industry, correct? Well, yeah. I mean, it certainly can be. What I try to separate out in the book is, um, the practice of finance, which is broken in some ways, meaning there's a little bit more value extraction going on than value creation okay. relative to the actual function of finance, which is so central and can be like this really life-affirming thing. So, you know, the book tries to, in a way, walk a line, which is, you know, I think people who say finance is like God's work, it's all great, you know, I, I think that's really problematic. It's not. It's it's an industry, and it's yeah. a good industry, and it does something incredible, which is it transfers capital from people who have it to people who need it, which is like the biggest thing to do in capitalism. Um, so it's a great industry, and it has great ideas. It's just that we've lost track of those ideas. You know, in a way, the book is a way of saying, if we're going to fix finance, which I think it does need to be fixed, yeah. Um, you know, regulation's possible, but it's got a lot of side effects that are complicated. Uh, you can just be outraged, but that doesn't do anything. I think the real thing is let's get back. Let's get back to these underlying ideas as the way to move the industry forward. Well, and I ask you that because obviously in, in the most recent past, we've seen things going on with Deutsche Bank and, and Wells Fargo. And, you know, it's an industry which, when you think about it, the numbers of, of issues that pop up, especially in the last couple of years, haven't been that massive. But when something happens, it is a massive problem. And so it's, you know, more on the finance end here. It's hard for a lot of people to really associate and want to delve into the finance industry when you see so many issues popping up. That's exactly right. You put your finger on two things, Dan, right? One is um, there are these problematic things that happen, which signal that there's a real underlying problem, and then they get blown out of proportion, um, which creates the societal taint on finance. And that taint and that kind of view of, God, finance is kind of evil, it's like doubly bad because then, you know, there's nothing to aspire to. And what I see in people in finance is they're a little bit um, ashamed of going into it or they're kind of like they think of their professional life as separate from their personal life because finance is dirty. Yeah. That's really problematic. The book tries to bring your personal and professional life together, you know, which is you, you work in a field that's actually fantastic. It's got these great ideas. You know, live up to that because I want to I make finance aspirational as opposed to defining it downward as like an evil, as an evil field. What do you think it could be, and, and, and this has to be a could-be question because this is, to a degree, still playing out. What do you think could be the effect uh, on the finance industry of tax reform if we see something significant here in the next you know, year to two? Yeah, so I think um, you know, taxes, uh, tax policy is my major area of scholarship. So um, I think it's really interesting what's happening today. I think first – you know, markets are being moved by the prospect of tax reform. Yep. You know, I think that's been a huge piece of why people think, have been getting excited in markets. I think that's pretty misplaced because the kinds of things that are being talked about are not going to happen. And, you know, the Trump um, sheet of paper that came out, which is a tax plan, you know, is barely a plan. 
it's got some interesting ideas embedded in it, but it's you know not really a plan. What will actually end up happening either this year or next is like a pretty narrow corporate tax reform, I think, where the rate comes down to something more like 25, 22%. Right. And we, most importantly, we get out of this worldwide regime. Both of those things are going to help um, financial players and markets a lot. And that's great because it's going to help the economy, <laughs> more importantly, a lot. Um, it's going to free up a lot of capital. It can come back to this country. It's going to make the U.S. a better place to invest. Those are the really, really important things. You know, but I do think the market's gotten ahead of itself in a way because there's talk about this border adjustment tax, right. which would have um, a lot more significant effects. I think that's a really fairly very you know, risky move, and I think it's probably not going to happen. Um, yeah. So I think when people readjust their expectations to something more modest, which is going to be better, frankly, um, it's going to it's going to you know take them a little while to digest that. So then, what do you see as being kind of the future for the finance industry right now? Well, I think it's um, you know in a way I've been struck by how little has changed over the last ten years, right? So if you go back to two thousand and eight and you come to today, you know how much has really changed, right? And the answer is well, look at the banking sector, you know very little. Um, some banks have grown bigger. The biggest have grown bigger. There's been very little to no entry, and there's been no real bust-ups. Um, that's true across the sectors. Um, only now do we see some compression in alternative assets and in hedge fund fees. So it's been really slow moving, yeah. um, which says something to the political power of finance and maybe just to the unwillingness to tackle it. You know, I think what happens in the longer run is I think these large banks have a, you know, have a business model problem. And they've got to figure out how to make money. <laughs> and they've got to figure out what their business model is. Yeah. And unless they do that, um, you know, it's going to be tough to sustain them. I think some of them are doing really great jobs. But, you know, that's a big problem. So what I hope happens in finance is, um, you know, in some ways, we kind of reorient ourselves to, like, these core functions, which are our value creating, like managing people's risks, right? Like simple uh, credit, <laughs> you know, simple broking. Yeah. And kind of get away from some of the things that are actually a little bit more extractive, like, you know, chunks of the money management industry, um, which are, I think, are a little more questionable. So that's what I hope happens is we kind of move back to simpler core finance, like what, you know, banks in a way used to be in some sense, uh, and get away from these uh, much more complex institutions, which are both hard to regulate and hard to manage. Going back to your book for uh, a minute or two, and we're talking with me here, Tasai, who is the author of the book Wisdom of Finance, Discovering Humanity in the World of Risk and Return. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. I, I, I think I can honestly say that this becomes the first uh, book of this type that I have discussed on this show that has references to Ray Charles and Kanye West on them, which <laughs> yeah. I think is is phenomenal. I mean, it, it goes uh, into a very interesting section of your book, which I'll let you uh, – we've touched on it a little bit, but I'll let you go into it a little bit further about uh, about how, uh, you know, th this it's an, it's an unbelievably interesting link. Yeah, so I think, you know, in part um – I wanted to make it, again, broad, so anybody can kind of come in. You know, people who like Jane Austen, people who like Kanye, anybody can come in. And what I did with those two is um, there's a chapter on um, mergers and marriages, which is yep. titled somewhat cheekily, you know, there's no finance, sorry, there's no romance without finance. Right. Um, and I wanted to show that um, these things, these concepts of love and finance, people think of as being totally separate, right? One is lovely and beautiful, and one is crass and dirty. And in fact, they've been linked in history, like throughout history. Um, you know, romance and finance have been linked. Part of the way I introduced that is with the movie Working Girl, which, as you 
may know is like the greatest Wall Street movie ever. I yeah. Think. yeah. <laughs> it's an old fashioned one, but it's a great Wall Street movie. Um, but then I show how, um, in the case of Ray Charles and Kanye West, they take this kind of same idea. So Ray Charles' original idea has this, you know, beautiful idea of, you know, how, you know, romance has nothing to do with finance and how, you know, the, this woman that, who loves Ray Charles is fantastic. And then Kanye flips it in Gold Digger, completely flips it, the yep. sentiment, and it says, you know, no, in fact, um, that person who you think is being nice, and he literally uses the lyrics that Ray Charles used in the original yeah. um, to kind of really kind of question that. And so the reason I like that is makes you just think these things are connected. So in the mergers chapter, for example, I really try to show how, and this is really cheeky, but I think it works, which is a lot of the folklore around marriages actually applies, sorry, a lot of the folklore about mergers applies to marriages. Right. Um, you know, so for example, um, we know that it's um, a setting where synergies are always overestimated. Right. Um, well, I think that's true in the marriage setting as well. Um, integration planning is always underdone. Well, and, uh, and you also bring up, uh, you mentioned Working Girl. I mean, and, and when when I went through the book and I saw this, I had to go back and think about the movie for a second because I remember seeing it when it when it came out. Uh, just the fact that Sigourney Weaver basically was referring to marriage as a merger. Exactly. And, you, you know, which, which, which was truly Wall Street at that time. Exactly. And it's one of those great proposals, right? Uh, there are these two great proposals in the book. <laughs> one is Sigourney Weaver um, proposing to Harrison Ford yep. and basically saying, you know, you and me, let's merge, you yep. know, <laughs> yeah. as if that was the ultimate. And then the other great proposal is from Pride and Prejudice, where um, Mr. Collins tries to play off of Lizzie Bennett's risk aversion and basically says, you know, you're never going to get anything better, so you better take me. Um, so these are like the, probably the two most worst proposals in the world. But they, you know, they both kind of serve a purpose of showing kind of a risk management in Jane Austen, but also this parallel between marriages and mergers in that chapter. Mihir, thank you very much for your time today. I greatly appreciate you. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you. Mihir Desai, the book is The Wisdom of Finance, Discovering Humanity in a World of Risk and Return. It is available in bookstores right now and available online. Many thanks to me here for joining us uh, today on the show. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.